Welcome to this VJSM podcast and you'll be hearing from Tim Gabbard. He works at the intersection of performance, load monitoring, recovery and injury prevention for hot topics and I'm delighted to be with Tim. Thanks for joining the podcast, Tim. Thanks, Karen. Good to be here. Now, there's a perception that physio and S&C, strength and conditioning, can butt heads at times. What's been your experience and what's the solution? Wherever I go, it's, it's pretty much the, the, same, the same perception that um, you have physio on one end of the spectrum or medical on one end of the spectrum and then you have strength and conditioning or performance on the other end of the spectrum. But the reality is I, I think they're, they're closer together than, than what we think. Um, the strength and conditioning staff are, are always looking to, to push pretty hard and, and try and um, develop resilience and, and physical adaptation in players. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, physios are, are seen as, as sort of um, almost managing players away from training if, if they feel like the player is going to break. Um, I think probably the the problem is or the challenge is that um, strength and conditioning staff can learn a lot from the physio um, in terms of the extra stuff that they can bring to the table but also physio can learn from strength and conditioning about about the demands of the game and um, I think if if they work a lot closer together and, and work together well um, ultimately we'd, we'd, we'd bring about a, a more resilient athlete and we'd probably um, we'd probably end up in, in fewer injuries as well. And Tim, you're saying that there's some things that physios can do particularly well that S&C can learn from? One of the strengths of physios is that they can identify musculoskeletal limitations really well. Um, and, and the next thing they can do is, is strengthen athletes, uh, strengthen the limitations in those areas. So if it's, if it's um, weak glutes or tight hamstrings or shoulder instability, they can put training programs in place to strengthen those areas. Now, the, the, the benefit of that is that the demands of the game uh, are getting, getting more and more demanding. So whatever sport we look at, they're getting more intense, um, players are getting fitter, um, the games are getting harder, the gap between the, the top teams and the bottom, the bottom teams are getting, getting smaller and smaller. So strength and conditioning staff are going to throw as much load at players in order to, to develop physical adaptations and, and develop mental resilience. Um, if, if physios can see themselves as a performance physio, so this concept of a performance physio rather than just a, um, a, a treatment type physio, what they can do is by strengthening musculoskeletal limitations, they actually put players in a position where they can, they're more likely to handle the load that strength and conditioning staff are throwing at them, which means ultimately they're more likely to handle the load that the game throws at them um, and, and tolerate the demands of the game. And tell us about the progression from someone being not injured and getting ready to play. I think one of the things that, that strength and conditioning staff have a, a good knowledge base around is the demands of the game. And, and there is a big difference um, between um, early stage rehab right up to the demands of the game. And if we, if we look at it as a continuum, um, you have a player who's in early stage rehab um, who will progress to um, a return to training. So it's generally some sort of return to skills training. And the demands of skills training are, are miles away from, for the, for the most part, miles away from the demands of the average demands of competition. 
which in turn are miles away from the, the worst case scenario that players um, are faced with in competition. So there's a continuum from early stage rehab right through the worst case scenario. Um, and I think it, it's really important from a from a physiotherapy point of view to, to understand um, the, the state of, of the athlete in early stage rehab and the, and the type of demands there, but also um, what, they're, what they're actually getting players back for. Um, and, and I think they can learn a little bit from, from strength and conditioning in that way to, to work out, well, this is the peak demands of competition. Um, this is where I've got to get this player to. And, and again, strength and conditioning can work pretty closely there to make sure that that players are, are linearly linearly reintegrated into training and re, reintegrated into competition to make sure that uh, we don't spike a, a player too much and, and increase their loads too much, but also making sure that when they come back into to full training that they're actually prepared to train. They actually are ready to train. And if we use rugby as an example, what are some of the elements of match demands that you look at? Well, rugby's a rugby's a, a unique game, and it's a little bit different from football in that um, we have the running loads, but but we also have the contact demands. We can use GPS, and we can use accelerometers and gyroscopes to measure running load and, and contact loads. Um, as an example, in early stage rehab for someone with a, a hamstring injury in rugby they may cover one to two metres per minute of high-speed running. So in a 30-minute a session, that's, that's 30 metres of high-speed running. Um, now, if we compare that to, to training, um, they may cover five metres per minute. In competition, it might be 10 metres per minute. And then the most demanding passage of play in competition might be 25 metres per minute. So you can see there's a, a continuum or a progressive increase in the, in the load that um, that players have to be prepared for. Um, so, so we would use um, GPS to make sure that we're um, progressing the high-speed running demands, um, progressing the increase in intensity. Um, we can use the accelerometers from a, a collision point of view. Um, so, on average, um, players may perform one collision every two minutes in a rugby game, but in the worst-case scenario, the most demanding passage of play they may perform two contacts every minute. So the idea is to to gradually progress players from a from a situation where they're they're doing one or two metres per minute in that early stage rehab to actually get them back to a situation that um, if they have to go to a dark place in competition and they have to perform um, a lot of work in a in a condensed period of time that they're actually prepared for it and we don't have to worry about them breaking down because they've they've actually been there before in training. And does that apply to repeated effort demands? How do you progress those? Yeah, it's it's the same as well. Um, in in early stage rehab, we we might perform one repeated effort bout in a in a thirty minute session. Um, so it's the intensity of of repeated effort or the frequency of repeated efforts is quite low. But in the worst case scenario, um, in in competition, you may be depending on your position, you may be required to perform a repeated effort every once every four minutes. Um, so there's a big difference there in in terms of the repeated effort frequency from early stage rehab through to the most demanding passage of play. So again, we can we can progress that if you know what those demands are in early stage rehab and you know what the demands are that you're trying to get players prepared for. 
it gives you an end point. It gives you a finish line. And it sounds like you're a big fan of really understanding player demands by measuring performance and continually updating those demands? Yeah, oh, that's a good question. I mean, it, the demands are, if anything, that they're, they're increasing rather than decreasing. Um, if we look at the Premier League alone, um, the, the gap between the, the, the top-tier teams and the bottom-tier teams are is decreasing both in terms of um, physical demands and, and technical demands. So even at the even at the lower the lower level, the game the game's getting harder and harder. Um, so you know what what we thought were the demands a year or two ago, um, it, the games evolve so quickly that and, and sports science and technology um, brings about so many changes. Um, and improvements in preparation that the game changes really quickly. So you, you need to constantly reevaluate where you where you think the demands of the game are at. And what's a ballpark number that top clubs would be paying for this technology and the resources the people to interpret it? What would they spend? Oh, look, every club's investing in it. So you're probably looking at a hundred thousand Australian dollars to to fit out an NRL team or uh, an AFL team, right up to probably seven hundred fifty thousand um, pounds. I've heard to to fit out a um, a Premier League football team. Tim, for physios who are at a club where they don't have these resources, how can they get insight into some of these measures of player demand and player workload? I think the important thing is that you don't actually have to have expensive technology all the time to to measure. Um, to measure load, you know, it's nice to to have a unit on a player and be able to to measure running speeds and, and whatever else. But when we first started monitoring load um, 15 or 20 years ago, all we had was a session RPE scale. And and the funny thing is, with session RPE, it's it's still used today, and it's still probably one of the the best methods of of quantifying um, load for a lot of different type of training activities. Um, so all it all it entails is having players um, rate the intensity of a session using a 1 to 10 scale, and the scale's freely available on the internet. And then all you do is just multiply the session intensity by the duration of the session, and that gives you a, a measure of load. Um, and, and there's been some some really good work um, that's, that's shown relationships between load and injury, um, and load and performance, so it, it, it is a it's it's correlated um, against heart rate. It's correlated against blood lactate concentration. It's actually um, some reasonable correlations between session RPE and GPS measures. So um, you may actually save yourself a lot of money on on GPS units by just using a, a session RPE scale. And that does bring us to the issue of protective effect of load on injury prevention and as we sort of come towards the close of the podcast uh, let's talk about these really practical things can teams get overtrained, and does that really provide a big risk of overuse injury or is there a bit of a myth about that and then we'll talk about training spikes to finish yeah, in answer to your first question yes teams or, or individual athletes can definitely um, become overtrained. Um, but I think I think if um, strength and conditioning coaches or physios have a have an understanding of the general principles of training um, in terms of um, progression and overload and recovery, um, then the chances of of overtraining are, are um, incredibly reduced. Um, the, the second thing 
to, to keep in mind is that um, not not all injuries are load related. The whole um, you know as soon as a, a player breaks down and and um, suffers a, a soft tissue injury, I think it's really easy to go. Well, it's load. Load's the problem. It's an easy it's an easy answer. But the reality is um, that the the vast majority of work that we've we've seen shows that if you can safely um, get players to high training loads, it actually reduces their risk of injury. So, so high training loads aren't necessarily the problem. It's it's the way that that we get there. That's that's the important the important factor. If you if you ramp up training loads too quickly, then it makes sense that you're going to increase the risk of injury for athletes. But if you if you take a um, a progressive approach, a systematic approach, and progressively overload the players. Um, then you you reduce their risk of injury, and you actually you get them to high training loads, but you get them there in a in a safe and systematic way. And does it look different pre-season, mid-season, and you know, near the finals? Firstly, players can handle a lot more load in the pre-season than they can in season, and and that's predominantly due to the fact that um, players spend a lot more time recovering in season than they than they do pre-season, and. Um, you only really get one pre-season, so you want to make the most of it. So, so coaches are, are more inclined to push players a little harder in the pre-season, um, to because that's that's the only chance you get to develop physical qualities and and to push them out of their comfort zone a little bit. But in season, it's it's almost the reverse. You um, you, you still work pretty hard, but you're less likely to push a player into that uncomfortable position in the in the. Uh, because you, you want them there available on um, on the weekend to play. Now, Tim, that leads into the concept of training stress balance. What is it? And perhaps you can give a quick example for us to help understand it. Yep, sure. Look, the the training stress balance basically gives us an idea of of the athlete's readiness to train or readiness to play. So, um, if we look at a training stress balance, we calculate it. From the, from the difference between a fitness score and fatigue. So it's basically fitness minus fatigue. When we use load in this type of model, we use chronic load being equivalent or analogous to fitness and acute load being analogous to fatigue. So our chronic load is, is what we might have done over a, a four to six week period on average and our acute load is, is what we've done typically over the last week. So if your chronic load is high, and your acute load is low, it indicates that you're you're in a, a good state of readiness or a positive training stress balance. The flip side is if your chronic load is low and your acute load is high, then you're in a negative training stress balance or you're you're not in a a, a, a strong position to, to train or compete. So what we did with with cricket was um, looked at um, the training stress balance in terms of balls bowled. And we looked at um, our chronic balls bowled over a, a, um, a four-week period in, in fast bowlers, and we then looked at um, what they did in the last week. And when we and we modelled that against injury risk, when players were in a positive training stress balance, so when they'd done a lot of work in the last four weeks, and their acute load was quite low, their risk of injury was also low. But when the, when it was um, the opposite effect, so when we had a low chronic bowling load and a high acute load, so they'd worked a lot in the last week, their their risk of injury increased exponentially. 
Um, so basically what it says there, that if you can have your players in a, a positive training stress balance, that you safely get them to high chronic loads, that you manage their acute loads from week to week, then you manage to keep players in a, in a relatively um, low, in a low risk of injury. But if you, if you go into a major competition with a low level of fitness, with a low um, load bank, a low um, level of, of chronic training load, and then you spike them in that last week leading into major competition, then their risk of injury is going to increase. It's really quite, it's common sense, but it's the first, it's, it's amazing that even though it's common sense, there's not a lot of groups out there that actually model training load in this way. So for people trying to understand what to actually graph, would it be balls bowled in cricket and a measure of distance in, in football codes? Yeah, well, the reality is it, it could be just about anything, um, and it comes down to what your your most important um, load measure is. So in, in cricket, fast bowlers, balls bowled is is the number one um, measure of load. In, in someone like uh, football players or rugby players, it could be um, the distance that they've run in a, in a week or the, the amount of high-speed running. In, in swimming, typically it, it would be swimming volume, so the, the distance that they cover. So, and, and equally, you could use the session RPE, and we've also used the session RPE load um, to, to quantify this load injury relationship. So there's a... Basically, it can come down to whatever you consider to be your your gold standard of load. And Tim, I can't leave it without uh, bringing up one data point. Rod Whiteley said that you had a predictor where someone would be 80 times at risk of injury in a certain setting. Can you just recap that for us? We developed an injury prediction model based on on load injury relationships for for individual players, um, and. All we had was a simple session RPE um, monitoring system and we, we developed these load injury relationships for individual players um, and then um, implemented this system to see whether we could actually prevent soft tissue injuries. Um, and and what, we were fa- what we found was that um, when players exceeded their individual load injury curve or um, they were 70 times more likely to get injured. Um, but when they were under um, their load threshold, um, they were injured one-tenth as often. So it, it really was quite a powerful tool just to, to try and uh, prevent some of those non-contact soft tissue injuries that occur. And they're typically the ones that we consider to be preventable injuries. Tim, thanks a lot. We'll leave it there. Appreciate your time today. Thanks very much, Karen. Pleasure. And... You can hear more from Dr. Tim Gabbett, who's a sport science and coaching consultant who works all around the world. You can go to his website on gabbettperformance.com and with the power of the Google, you can easily track him down. Thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. Follow us via Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ and our mobile app will get you to lots of BJSM content. 